Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 16th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You got a problem with the sunset clause? I got a problem with you. Lindsey Graham's got a problem with the sunset clause. I'd hate to be a Democrat defending the sunset clause. Hey, look, I don't like when the deal is over that Iran could get back to pursuing nuclear weapons. It'd be better if they gave up forever and ever and ever that ambition. The Democrats don't like the sunset clause. John Dickerson doesn't like the sunset clause. I could tell. He didn't answer when Lindsey Graham put that to him. And those have longer sunset periods. You may think the sunset is a good deal. I don't. But let me tell you, John Dickerson doesn't think the Sunset Clause is a good idea. He'd rather have the Iranians give up nukes tomorrow and agree to never even think of a word that rhymes with nuclear. But the deal with the Sunset part of the deal being a bad deal is this. It's not a flaw in the agreement. It is the agreement. That's the agreement. The Iranians aren't breaking the rules. These are the rules. Over on Fox, General McMaster said this about the Sunset Clause. A deal that can lay alongside the JCPOA and address its fundamental flaws, one of which you've already mentioned, which is the sunset clause, where Iran can just wait for a little while, reap all the benefits of sanctions relief to enrich the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is which is on a murderous, brutal campaign across the Middle East. And there you have the other critique. The agreement has a sunset clause, and the agreement allows Iran to do all these other terrible things like pursue terrorism. Actually, it doesn't allow Iran to pursue terrorism. It doesn't forbid it either. It basically says as much about terrorism as it does who should be the captain of the Iranian soccer team if they make the World Cup. It turns out that the nuclear weapons agreement is about nuclear weapons, and it's not about things that aren't nuclear weapons. And here's why it's okay that the Iran nuclear weapon deal isn't the Iran can't do anything bad in the world deal, because I'd like Iran not to do anything bad. You heard President Trump's critique of Iran for oppressing their own people and funding terrorists and destabilizing Yemen and destabilizing the entire Middle East. And all that's true. All that's bad. But they're not nuclear weapons bad. How many members of your family have been hurt by what's going on in Yemen? What does the funding of Hezbollah, and they have killed Americans, but what's that threat to you and your neighbors and millions of Americans or millions of Israelis versus the threat of a nuclear Iran? You know, I think of the drummer in Spinal Tap, who when asked about sex, drugs, and rock and roll said, you know, if you did away with the rock and roll, but kept the sex and drugs, I think I'd be fine with that. See, that's how Iran thinks of nuclear weapons. The nuclear just allows them to pursue their true passions, the terrorism and the oppression. And I'm not saying that we should allow them just to jail anyone willy-nilly and to subjugate their people or to fund destabilizing rebel groups in the region, because if they did that, they'd be, I don't know, Saudi Arabia. But it's the nuclear that keeps me up at night. Though not literally, I sleep pretty well at night, thanks to my own sunset provision.
on the show today. I spiel about New York Times op-ed columnist Mayim Bialik. Did she say there is a way to dress to avoid rape? No, she didn't. But if we pretend she did, then she just might be the monster we've been looking for. I mean, did I sharpen this pitchfork for nothing? But first, last week, Donald Trump issued a couple of executive orders about health care. He's attempting to hasten its implosion, or he would say, it's imploding. I will not be standing in the way of that. Vox's Sarah Cliff is here to go beyond the implications of the latest. There's always the latest. And to really dive into the fundamental questions about where healthcare might go in America. Last week, President Trump let loose a couple of executive orders on health care. He said he will not be making cost-sharing reduction payments to people who have trouble affording individual health plans. That, according to the CBO, means that health care for the federal government is going to increase by $200 billion over 10 years. That's your and my costs. And also premiums will spike. Can't see much of an upside. A little earlier than that, Trump decreed that he would do away with the plan minimums that are mandated under Obamacare. So the real world effect of this is that healthy people might get cheaper plans and unhealthy old people will have to pay more if they can afford plans at all. So health care for the healthy. To some, that's not fair. To others, that's just the definition of insurance. Now, I mention all this to say we actually are not going to be getting into the weeds of these particular developments because we have right here Sarah Cliff of Vox. And speaking of the weeds, she's also from the Weeds podcast. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm well. Um, okay, so I really wanted to have you on to talk about some big picture issues without a healthcare reform of Damocles hanging over our head. There always seems to be one. In this healthcare debate, a plan will be unveiled. The CBO will give it a score or try to give it a score if there are enough details. It'll turn out that 18 or 19 or 20 million people will lose healthcare. A claim will be made that this new plan, whatever, whatever it is, this Republican version of reform is literally killing people. Do you think that's a fair claim? Yeah, those are a little bit difficult to wade through, right? But I think the preponderance of evidence we have suggests that health insurance, particularly Medicaid, is where we have the most analysis that Medicaid does save lives. What we've seen, you know, most of the research looks at states that expanded Medicaid versus those that didn't. This, um, you know, Supreme Court decision that lets states decide if they want to participate in that, it set up a natural experiment for a lot of states to look at what becomes different. And we have multiple studies now suggesting that uh, mortality rates, rates of death, they decline in states that expand Medicaid. So that's pretty convincing evidence. Like That being said, there are other studies that struggle to find that kind of outcome. There's a really famous study in the health in the in the health wonk world I live in that was done in Oregon, where they had this lottery for people to get health insurance. And they found the people who did get health insurance through Medicaid, um, they had the lottery because they didn't have enough slots for everybody. They had more financial peace of mind. They had less bankruptcy. They felt better. They didn't actually seem to get any healthier in the outcomes they were able to measure. It was a short-term study, only a few years. They weren't able to see that it prevented death. So you have people citing both of those bodies of research, but I think we are seeing a growing body that suggests that Medicaid does reduce 
the rates of mortality in low-income populations. Yeah, that Oregon study, that's really famous. There's also an Australian bike helmet study that's similarly famous. Like It's such a good study for the other side that it constantly gets pointed to. But I guess my quibble with uh, it will kill people is you need a few steps to get there. And there it's not like there aren't other avenues for people either to get health insurance or even better to be healthy, right? It's just uh, restructuring the plan that we have such that, yes, it will likely be a consequence that some people will not have Medicaid. Yet on the other hand, I guess you could say that, you know, pulling out a NAFTA kills people because there are a lot of studies that show that, you know, NAFTA helps at least the very poor people in China get a higher standard of living and that could correlate to some sort of death. I mean, every government, this is why government exists. Like every big change kills someone. <laughs> it's a very, uh, very enthusiastic motto for it government. Does. You, you do it right. You kill fewer people. We're all going to die. That's the thing about like, this will kill people. So will everything else. Like we're all definitely going to die. So with the baseline of us dying, how much less dying will go on under this plan is what I ask myself. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, I think, you know, with something like Medicaid, the tie is a little bit more direct. One thing mm-hmm. to keep in mind is the United States has the highest health care prices in the entire world. And it is very, very difficult to afford health services if you do not have some kind of insurance. It is certainly true that all emergency rooms are required to provide life stabilizing care. If you walk in the doors of an ER and there's something you need to stay alive, they have to give it to you. But they will also bill the hell out of you later for those services. And I think that does you know, lead to some people being cautious about going to the emergency room, not going in for things they don't think are are emergencies. Or, you know, once you're stabilized, they have really no requirement to keep seeing you, to make sure you can afford your prescription. So the link there is decently clear. These studies we're starting to see about Medicaid reducing mortality rates, that that story is pretty easy to tell about why particularly, you know, I think for for a higher income, the linker the link's going to be weak because higher income people can probably pay for more health care. They can feel more comfortable going yeah. to the emergency room. But I think when you focus on a low income population, it's easy to see why health insurance would be saving lives there. Another claim that I wanted to interrogate with you is will be robbing people of their health care or kicking people off health care. I know some of it is that people decide to uh, forego health care if given that option. But Isn't this a very dramatic way of saying we're going to throw it all back to 2009? Like it seems, it seems like, oh my God, it's life and death and it is life and death, but it's also 2009. Remember back to 2009? That's the worst that can happen. But 2009 wasn't great for a lot of people, right? That's a great point. Yeah. (laughs) You had, so you're right. I think, you know, it, it, that was a market where if you were someone who had a pre-existing condition that raised from range from asthma to cancer, you might not be able to get health insurance. So it's true. Like people got by people, you know, just less than a decade ago. Um, was, I was actually lecturing about a year ago in a college classroom. And one of the students asked me, you know, what's a pre-existing condition? Because I think he was like, I can't believe it. But at this point, like too young to know about that other insurance market. People got by, but a lot of people really struggled. Medical debt, for example, you had way more medical bankruptcy. So We've seen it before. That doesn't mean it's it's great. Yes. This is another, I think, probably area of my ignorance. When we fight about ACA reform and Obamacare and increasing premiums, are we talking about the majority of Americans who get their insurance from their employers? Or are we talking about a really a rather small portion 
of the population? Or is there some bleed that I'm not understanding how this thing that we're debating actually affects the premiums I might be paying in my health care given by my private employer? No, I think your instinct is right. The insurance marketplace covers about 7% of the American population. And then you also have people in Medicaid expansion. So we're talking about maybe one in 10, one in nine Americans. It's their insurance that is the focus of the fight. The insurance that you and I get at work, that's never really been up for debate. I mean, it's up for debate in Bernie Sanders' single payer plan, which Mm -hmm. would get rid of that insurance and put us all in a government-run plan. But uh, the, the congressional debate we've had over the past year, that's just about people who are either in Medicaid, the government program for low-income Americans, or or who are purchasing their own insurance. So I think your instinct is right, that it feels like a giant debate. But for yeah. most of us, you know, there's nothing at stake. And so when we hear there's a 116% increase in Arizona, we're not. it doesn't mean that Arizonans are paying twice much for health care. It means the very small proportion of Arizonans who buy it from, who don't get it from their employer uh, might see, in that county might see those rates going up that much. Right. Employer-sponsored insurance, uh, premiums have actually been increasing like not super fast lately. I think we're mm-hmm. like looking at 3 to 5% increases each year, which is pretty slow for health insurance premiums. And I'd say it's even smaller than the group you talked about. About half the people who buy their own insurance get subsidies from the federal government to do so. These are people who earn, for an individual, between like $20,000 and $60,000. And for those people, they're a little bit insulated from those premium increases. We're talking about the other half in this one Arizona county who buy insurance on their own. They are facing like a rough situation. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, it is really shitty to have your premiums go up 116% and they're bearing the full brunt of that. But that's a small segment of, you know, any place that you're looking at. Yeah. Did Obamacare, quote, bend the cost curve as it promised? That, oh, God, there's so much debate among health economists about that. So we've had really, really slow healthcare cost growth over the past seven or eight years. But the thing that's like really hard to figure out is that just because we were coming out of a recession and you had kind of a slowdown in everything, or is there something different happening in our healthcare system? Most economists I talk to say like a little column A, a little bit of column B. It looks like Obamacare is doing something, but it's not responsible for the entire slowdown. So it's, you know, the jury's out. And one thing we don't know about the Trump administration is like where they're going on this cost curve bending adventure, you know, if they're going to keep up if we aren't small business owners, if we're just the people with uh, our health care provided by employer, did this law affect us or cost us money? Are we paying in taxes money for people to get insurance that they couldn't get? It depends who you are. So if you're someone who is a high income, there are some excise taxes on high income Americans that help finance the insurance expansion. Um You know, some of the insurance mandates do apply to employer-sponsored insurance. The birth control mandate, for example, that the Trump administration released a rule rolling back in part, that applies to the employer-sponsored market. But um, that actually is probably lowering our premiums. When you have fewer unintended pregnancies, insurance tends to be cheaper. So that's probably driving down our premiums. It really depends who you are. Like, there's a tax on people who go tanning and they have to pay more when they go tanning. And that goes into finance, um, finance Obamacare. So it depends a lot on like who you are, what your situation is. Yeah. that ta- And the tanning lobby was four square against oh, that. I love the reading about it. The snooky tax. Yeah, yeah. snooky tax. <laughs> One of my favorite Obamacare taxes. Yeah. The big, big yellow lobby. Um, <laughs> I 
am of the opinion that someone is doing a really bad job about telling the story because I do think that most people think they're somehow paying for Obamacare. And even people who support it probably are saying to themselves, well, I'm a good kind person and I'm glad that my taxes go there and it's better to have fewer people uninsured. Like this to me is very frustrating. Who should I point my finger at? Oh, gosh. I don't. <laughs> Do you agree with that, though? Do you think that people really don't? There's so much. It's so complicated and we don't get it. But I think fundamentally think that this is a burden that people are, you know, people not in that very high income bracket are paying mm-hmm. for. Well, I think, you know, I've done a decent amount of reporting in more conservative areas. And I think like what I saw, people who were on the marketplaces and had to pay premiums, they would see people on Medicaid getting free insurance. And there would be so much resentment. There would be yeah. this like, feeling like those people get free insurance and they don't work. And, you know, a lot of times they're lazy and they don't deserve this health insurance. Um, I'd really recommend Atul Gawande, who writes for The New Yorker, did a fantastic piece, um, you know, in some of the areas of Appalachia that I've been visiting, you know, asking people, is healthcare a right? And I think a lot of this comes down to there's actually like a deep divide about whether healthcare is a right in America or whether it is something you have to earn. And we kind of have a system where people feel like you have to earn it. You have to have a job and insurance is tied to your job and that's how you get health coverage. Most other countries don't think like that. But I I have talked to former Obama administration officials who feel like they didn't quite think through the affordability issues, but they were a bit hamstrung. You know, Congress was only to give them so much money. I think one mistake they feel like they made is they made this promise back in 2009, that it wouldn't raise the deficit, that it would be cost neutral. This wouldn't spend any new money. One of the results of that promise is that they couldn't jack up the subsidies. I have talked to former Obama administration officials who feel like, you know what, we should have just gone for it. We shouldn't have like Mm. tied ourselves to this commitment that like it wouldn't raise the deficit. It would have been a better law, um, you know, as we think about it, especially if we were just going to pass it with all Democrats anyway. So I think that is one thing you can certainly trace it back to like a tangible regret about the law's drafting. But this all brings me to health care that is provided by our employer. Are most people so upset with that that they would favor a Bernie Sanders single-payer plan? Should they go for the single-payer plan that will give them better outcomes than the health care they have now? I've seen a lot of public opinion survey that everyone is very angry at Congress, but everyone likes their own congressperson. Yeah. Like, there's a distaste for health insurance, but then you ask people about, like, well, what about your plan? And they say, like, yeah, that's actually, like, working decently fine for me. Most of us at work, we have a few options to choose from when it comes to health insurance, although it's becoming less true. The competition's going down a little bit. If you have a system like the one Bernie Sanders has proposed, like Canada's, there's no choice. Like, this is the plan that you've got. Um, so you kind of hope it covers the things you want it to cover. And that that is certainly a trade-off of these plans. You know, the government decides what it covers, and you don't have, like, another competitor to go to if you want something different. Well, I have said on this show that if the year were 1910 and you said, let's look 107 years in the future, you want a Canada style plan or you want what America is now, I'd go for Canada. But now that the year is 2017, there are a lot of dislocations of changing from this to that. And it should be factored in. And I don't know that Bernie Sanders is factoring that (laughs) that in. 
Yeah, you know, I interviewed President Obama last January. And heard he of him, heard the interview. <laughs> maybe heard of the guy. Um, and yeah. he said the same thing. Like, you know, if I were starting from scratch, I would have gone like a Canada system, but I wasn't starting from scratch. I started from the kludgy American healthcare system. And if you look at like Europe, if you look at Canada, most health insurance markets, they start to develop post-World War II. Um, it's kind of like a – and they start developing post-World War II. In the U.S., employers use insurance as a way to woo workers. In other countries, they decide to build national healthcare systems. And we end up on these two really, really different paths that lead to, you know, Canada's healthcare system, you know, just north of us and our healthcare system a little bit further south. And I, I think that's a key point. You know, one of the things Canada has – done for the past 50 years is they've regulated their healthcare prices. They said, you know, this is how much an x-ray costs and a doctor visit costs. We haven't done that in the United States. So one of the things I think gets lost in this debate is that in America, if we kept our prices, these prices, you know, that have developed over the past 50 years, we'd have a really expensive healthcare system. We'd have a single payer system where the government pays like three times more for every x-ray. It wouldn't be a Canadian system unless we're going to make really drastic cuts. And that would just wreak so much havoc on the American healthcare system. If all of a sudden you told them, you know, the x-ray you get $200 for, now you're going to get $50 for and like make your budgets work around that. Sarah Cliff is a writer for Vox. She's on the Weeds podcast and she has a new podcast coming out. Plug it here. What's its name? It is called The Impact. It is a new narrative show about how policy affects real people, and I'm so excited about it. Narrative? Does that mean you talk over music beds at some point? At so many points. You you got it. Oh, man. That's why you got into this game. Sarah Cliff, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. And now the spiel. Rapists are responsible for rape. I thought I would get that out of the way before wading into this area, because if you don't put it up top or out front, some people might misconstrue who you're pointing the finger at. It is the rapists. They're the ones doing the raping, the men who rape. It is 100% their fault. Okay, that said, Mayim Bialik, you know her from TV's Blossom, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that was widely derided as placing the blame for raping on someone other than the men doing the raping. I read the op-ed when it came out before the backlash, so just during the lash, and I didn't think the lash had that much sting. I mean, I just, I didn't love the op-ed. I thought she was writing about her experiences navigating Hollywood. I figured the editors of the New York Times would certainly be interested in a pretty famous actress and her take. And what her take was that Hollywood is a town where beauty is currency, and as a person, this is Maya Bialik's take, and as a person who was widely seen as not having much of that currency, my experience with this issue is different from the experiences of some of the young women you're hearing from. Okay, fine, as far as it goes. Bialik used the first person a lot, which told me she was keen to avoid generalization. I'll read a part. I still make choices every day as a 41-year-old actress that I think of as self-protecting and wise. I have decided that my sexual self is best reserved for private situations with those I am most intimate with. I dress modestly. I don't act flirtatiously with men as a policy. And in case you were wondering if she was saying, oh, and you should too, or if she was saying, and if you don't do this, you get what you deserve. She adds, in the piece, in a perfect world, 
Women should be free to act however they want, but our world isn't perfect. Nothing, absolutely nothing, excuses men for assaulting or abusing women, but we can't be naive about the culture we live in. Still, this was read by some, by many, as victim-blaming. The most shared tweet was by a writer named Eve Ewing. I found out about it because it was the top Twitter moment. I don't know, your algorithm may differ, but when I opened Twitter, it said the number one moment was the backlash against Bialik, and the number one tweet was this Eve Ewing tweet. Mayan Bialik is suggesting that Weinstein's targets, many of whom were children at the time of his offenses, could have avoided being harmed if they were good girls like her who didn't get manicures, which is both offensive and flat out wrong. E-viewing also tweeted, first quoting Bialik, quote, I've decided that my sexual self is best reserved for private situations with those I am most intimate with. I dress modestly. And then Ewing says, this is disgusting. My Bialik is placing blame on victims and forgetting that rape and assault are about power, not desire. Today, Bialik did a Facebook Live chat to clarify what to my mind was not a gray area by saying... What does dressing modestly have to do with harassment? I I will state it again. I'm pretty sure that I said it explicitly. How you dress and how you behave has nothing to do with you being assaulted. Assault and rape are acts of power. They're not acts of of sexual desire. Like, I totally, like, I get that. And I, I really do intend to convey that I understand that. The Facebook Live chat was mostly not holding Bialik's feet to the fire. The best versions of criticisms against her weren't put to her in a way that would make her uncomfortable. But still, it was pretty clear to me that Bialik was there to disabuse us of any notion that she was blaming the victim. It has become clear to me that there are people who um, think that I either implied or overtly stated that you can be protected from assault because of the clothing you wear or the behavior that you exhibit. That is absolutely not what my intention was. And I think that it is safe for me to start this conversation by saying there is no way to avoid being the victim of assault um, by what you wear or the way you behave. Now, let me say, I didn't love Bialik's op-ed. I think that she was saying, to some extent, that a tactic that worked for her in avoiding harassment was modest dress. And even if that is true, that it worked to some degree, how would we know that? does seem like a weak inoculation against the virulent pathogen that is a guy like Harvey Weinstein. But there are a couple of strains to this debate that I found interesting. What was the entire Twitter backlash phenomenon? It's familiar. In this case, it was a little nuanced. The basic debate comes down to readers of a piece inferring from the piece sentiments that weren't there in the literal sense. Were those sentiments implied? I don't know. There's no litmus test for implication. It's subjective. I happen to think that Bialik's biggest critics were reading into her piece a little bit. Here, here's one of Eve Ewing's tweets on it. Someone first tweeted to her, it honestly reads like this is her revenge on all the pretty girls of the industry. And then Eve Ewing said, right? There's a weird spite to it. Like, aha, you made fun of my nose. Well, guess what your looks got you? I think there's genre for that. Observation is fiction. However, I read some of the comments that people were making under the original uh, Eve Ewing tweet, and uh, they weren't terrible. A suicide girl, Nehru suicide, you know the suicide girls? They're like uh, alt pinup girls. She accused Eve Ewing of taking quotes out of context. Then there was a dialogue that broke out between Linda Melberg, who said of Eve Ewing's tweet, 
I read the whole article. I don't think this is what she meant. She said that women have every right to dress as they please. To which a username Prossy or PK Akuza said, I did too, meaning read the article. And the implication is there that because she dressed conservative, that's why she wasn't assaulted. That's what I read in it anyway. To which Linda Melberg, just going by Avatar, white woman, said, I get that. I interpreted it as if she was talking about her experience as a homely girl in Hollywood and her choice to dress conservatively. And then Prossy, black woman, again, just judging on the avatar, said, any other time that would have been okay, but not in relation to this. It all whiffs of you brought it on yourself dressing like that. You know what? That's not bad. That's like a dialogue. Two people of different backgrounds who never would have talked to each other, or I don't know, maybe they know each other in real life, but I don't think so. This is the promise of Twitter. This is the dialogue. This is discourse. All right, I'm done reading tweets from Twitter. I now introduce for this next exchange the gist players to bring it to life. Disclosure, I'm not a female. I just can't see bashing someone, expressing their experience, and speaking from their perspective on sexual misconduct. Now, it may not be the norm, correct, or fit anyone else's experience, but it was what happened with her. Is she not allowed to share? This misguided belief being disseminated on a large scale can skew others into blaming the victims for not dressing modestly enough. I get your sentiments, but is it a belief if she is rationalizing her experiences against what she knows to be true in that industry? Leaning on anecdotal evidence to invalidate the traumatic experiences of others is unnecessary. Her experience does not extend to the rest. I appreciate your perception on the matter. I did not read entire article. Oh, come on. It's 900 words. I was about to give you guys a compliment. And then you reveal you didn't even read the article. Look, I know the easy thing to do is say, ah, Twitter mob, what do you expect? But, you know, this is where discourse happens in 2017. What am I supposed to do? What are we all supposed to do? I mean, I want to see who's debating what. I don't want to immediately write it off as a debate not worthy of my attention. So what's the choice? Just a silo among the like-minded? So maybe I get drawn into these things. But, you know, this is where debate such as it is, is happening. So I put my thoughts out there on Twitter. I don't just have a podcast. I have a Twitter account. And I said, essentially, that Bialik's critics seem to be inferring stuff that she wasn't implying. I got agreement. I got disagreement. Fine. Two kinds of disagreement I got that I don't like that I want to talk about. One is someone wrote, quote, the online mobs are overreacting again is such a played out response to everything. Okay, so they are. They're not. Okay, I get it. Just silo among the like minded. And another response was, me and thousands of other women look at this as, if you dress sexy, it's partly your fault, and maybe you should listen. I'm sorry you don't value what women have to say on this. That seems like a flaw in you. I get this a lot. Listen to women, right? Women, because we know what women are saying. I've got a couple hundred women in this Twitter feed saying the same thing, so that must be what women are saying. I don't know. Is there polling that shows the women tweeting about this or a representative sample of women? Oh, and by the way, wasn't my entire point a defense of a woman who wrote the original piece? At the great risk of engaging in white-splaining or mansplaining or bald white mansplaining, please, it's balding white mansplaining. Of course, of course I get the sense that where an affected community stands on an issue is important. Confederate flag. Turns out, Polling showed that African-Americans were really against it. Made an impact on me. The Redskins, as a football team name, I looked at the polling. 
I assessed the methodology. It turns out that wasn't as unanimous an opinion as I'd have imagined. But listen to women, or listen to men, or listen to Serbs, or listen to your heart. Okay, I will. But arguments are either good or bad, compelling or weak, based on a lot of other factors besides who holds them. And I will listen. I do listen. But remember that thing I said about like-minded silos? I have raised that a few times. If your counter-argument rests on the assertion, from what I'm seeing in my purview, people of a certain demographic agree with me on this thing and not you, it doesn't seem like the strongest foundation to build an argument on. And look, if all we ever did was acquiesce to what our perception of demographically similar groups were saying on an issue, then no one would ever put forth any different ideas. I mean, what about that? What if Mayim Bialik chose not to write that op-ed? What then? The answer is that'd be fine. I don't love the op-ed. But what about if Eve Ewing chose not to respond forcefully? Again, that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But I will say there was some good discussion that resulted. So what am I saying? What is my prescription going forward? Let me put it this way. I don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. I'll give you a piece of my mind. In my opinionation, the sun is gonna surely shine. And in my opinionation, the sun is gonna surely shine. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Dan Schrader. He's trying to get this catchphrase going. Whoa! I say there's no chance of that. Mary Wilson, just producer, also trying to get a catchphrase going. Bazinga! Again, this one's going to die on the vine. Steve Lichtai is not only the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but he is the wind beneath my wings. The gist. Never saw a full episode of Blossom or The Big Bang Theory, which is not a humble brag, but just a flat-out brag. Have watched beaches all the way through, once even without crying. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.